my friends. Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Bombcast episode 271, all right? And for those who are just listening, I'm going to ask you to tap into your kind of visualization abilities right now to picture the scene. I'm here in my study at home. Behind me, it is lit in blue. I'm wearing a blue hat with a blue jersey because, oh, last night, my Kraken, we went into the deep, man. We went down to Colorado and we slayed the avalanche, baby. Three to one. If you have not watched that game, and you're going to watch that game, and I've told you the score, forgive me for spoiling it for you, but it was just that rad. Grubauer, oh man, lights out that guy was last night. Awesome. If you're not familiar with Grubauer, he's our goalie. Super stud last night was just, just solid. Like the whole team, they went in because the Avalanche are like the defending champs, right? And we were the underdogs and we were in their stable last night. And boom, baby, if there's any Avalanche, it was to their hearts, all right? They were crushed by the, the, just the sheer weight of the Kraken showing up and just playing awesome, excellent hockey. So I'm still on my high today. I'm on a high even with a cold, so you'll hear my voice. Kind of fighting off the thing because once you become a grandparent, it's like being a parent to little kids all over again and the little ones get sick and then you love on those little ones and they get you sick, but you don't care because you got some love from the little ones. So I'm sick, but I don't care because I got it from the little ones. But I love those little ones. I got to get my hugs and kisses, man. That's how it works. And so love my grandbabies. Don't mind I get sick from them. Um, but uh, I do have a little bit of thing going on. My voice feel kind of cruddy today. But I'm like, today is the day to do a podcast. And because I can still fly high on the Kraken victory last night. Very excited about that. Game two tomorrow night, Thursday night, uh, depending on when you're listening to this. It might be post or pre that. I don't know. Um And we have another game on Saturday and another game on Monday. And I just hope we roll, man. Just hope we roll, pop the avalanche in four. That'd be awesome. And go on to the next thing. So that's kind of thing. If you're not a hockey person, it's like there's a lot of layers to the playoffs, right? So it's just kind of what it is. Lots of games, kind of like baseball, just lots of games, lots of layers to the playoffs, but great stuff. So if you're not a hockey person, this is the right time to jump on board when your team's in the playoffs and it's just a different game, man. Like playoff hockey is different than regular season hockey because 82 games is a lot, right? But now it's like compresses everything and it's just super fun. So anyway, you might think about it. I know I'm talking too much about hockey. It's not even the topic of the day. I'm just excited about the Kraken. So got some other buddies around here. My man, Joe Mazzasini, Man, loves him some Kraken, too. We've gone to a game together, and we were going to try to get together and watch it, and it's just nothing was syncing up because uh, this week I'm doing youth group stuff. I'm doing Q&A for a high school and junior high youth groups, and so those are the nights that the games are going on are right when I'm doing that, so then I'm coming home and kind of binge-watching after that. But that's still super fun, man. It's super fun to, like, hang out with students, let them ask whatever they want, and then after that, go watch a great sporting match. So anyway, I'm eating up time, talking about sports, everything out else. Not the topic of the day. So I am always kind of wrestling with like, what do I talk about? Do I talk about stuff that I'm wrestling with? Do I talk about stuff that's going on in the world around us, whatever else? And and this is something that it's going to seem a little, not odd, I don't mean it like that, but it's just this topic where I, I keep thinking about, you know, what are the traits that are so important for Christians to embody? And uh, of those traits, I think one of the biggest ones, and this is for being an everyday missionary, and I think it's also just for our own relationship to God in some ways too, I think that one of the chief virtues that is critical in what it is we do is the virtue of humility. 
right? And and when I say humility, I don't mean it in just one layer. Uh, clearly, like throughout life, we're to have a, a sense of humility about everything, right? Like we're to realize we know less than half of everything, um, that we don't have all the answers, that we're always trying to grow and learn and adapt. And, you know, what I might learn today, I realized in 10 years ago, well, maybe I should change that a little bit, you know? And that's been the history of the church, right? When the church is at its best, it's when it's in a space of humility. And when it's at its worst, it's when it's in a space of pride, when it thinks it has figured out every mystery and can answer every question and, you know, has just perfect conviction on everything. What so often draws out of that is not a sense of, of like, uh, who am I to stand before the greatness of God? And I'm just lowly kind of thing, but in a healthy way. No, usually what happens is when you start to think you have all the answers, you just become more proud, a little bit more bitey, a little bit more feisty, a little bit more arrogant in the approach to the world around you. Maybe you look at other Christians, like they're less biblical than me. You look at non-Christians, they're just more sinful than me. You know, like that's always the risk of pride. Spiritual pride is a super destructive thing. And we always want to remember that our enemy wants to sow pride in all kinds of different capacities for life. Some in the secular world, he's going to sow pride, but also in the religious world, he loves to sow pride. And that is why I think humility is so key because humility keeps us dependent on God. Humility keeps us kind of in a focus of grace. Uh, And I, I think honestly, even humility just makes us far more teachable in life, because again, it reminds us that we have not kind of you know reached the apex of all perfection in this life, and therefore we know everything, and we can stop growing. Like that's not the case, right? So, with that, <clears throat> I was thinking about the subject of the day, and it is this reality. And I'm probably going to go different directions with this because this is very free form, right? Um, but it's this this reality that um, we're really good at sin, all right? We're really good at it. And I want to be clear what I mean by the word sin, because I think it gets really heavy loaded at times in one direction, which is, oh, we're really good at being immoral, right? And that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. Not that that isn't true, but if I go back to the definition of sin, it's a missing of the mark. And humans, by the mere fact that we breathe, miss the mark. Like all the time, every day, in all sorts of ways, we're just really good at missing the mark, right? And this is all the more why humility is is necessary for life, you know? And so just thinking about it in my own life, because I was having some conversations with some people recently about the fact that um, I'm a big fan or an advocate of being painfully aware of how flawed I am. Like, and and I don't mean that like I'm beating myself self up over uh, self up over every day up over day. See, this is where taking medicine before you do a podcast is kind of a drag. So I don't beat myself up every day because I'm like, oh, I'm missing the mark, right? That's what I'm trying to say. But um, I have this awareness of like, man, Lord, I know, I just know. There's a bunch of stuff I don't know, and then there is the stuff that I do know, and both of those combined have me missing the mark a lot, right? And so there's certainly things that I ascribe to or I hope to fulfill in my life that I know I don't always live up to that. Uh, I want to be a certain kind of pastor, but I don't always live up to the expectations that I have of myself or maybe either others have of me that are fair expectations. Like I just don't always do those things. I'm a bit of an introvert, and so sometimes I kind of pull away from the population to recharge my batteries when I know I should be maybe more engaged. Uh, so I know that like, and I know there's a fine line in there and we all have to have kind of like our, you know, kind of our mental health days, if you will, or whatever else. But I just know for me, I have a tendency to maybe pull backwards more than press forward on that subject. And so I miss the mark on what it means to me, maybe be the most ideal kind of 
shepherd, fellow Christian, you know, it, it kind of engaging in the body overall because my wiring and my kind of um, even like mental makeup is a little bit more isolationist, right? So I missed the mark there. And then I missed the mark as a husband where I want to love my wife well and communicate to the best of my ability and never say anything or do anything that inflicts unnecessary pain or harm. And if I have to have an awkward conversation, then I'm doing it from a spirit of service and love more than I'm trying to get something off my chest or get my way or just vent my frustration, like trying to really be a thoughtful person that says, hey, I'm putting her before me. But boy, I sometimes miss the mark on that, you know? I do it as a father, you know, where I'll have moments where I can get frustrated or short or flippant or I can be teasing, but it's teasing that causes some level of hurt or harm or insecurity in my kids because, again, dad shouldn't be saying a thing that bites so much that it actually, like, feels like there's a little bit of a layer of truth in the big joke that you're trying to tell, right? So I missed the mark there. Like, there's all kinds of things where we miss the mark, right? And so I think from that as Christians— It's why we, A, should love grace so much, and B, why we should be so quick to want to extend grace to other people, because again, we just know human beings are really good at missing marks, right? Well, then I had this realization that runs a little bit deeper in the realm of what it is I believe, right? Like as a Christian, uh, that I hold to certain truths. Now, I'd like to say that those truths are biblical truths. What I think is that most religious, quote, truths or doctrine or dogma is pretty much most of it is somehow rooted in the Bible. But that doesn't guarantee that we're reading the Bible right to create the doctrines that we do. And therefore, a lot of our doctrines even should have this level of humility attached to it. Like, hey, I'm doing the best I can with a book that seems really, really kind of confusing at times or messy at times. Or it was speaking to a culture 4,000 years ago that is not my culture. It had certain worldview assumptions that I don't even fully understand. And so when I navigate this book, even as close as 2,000 years ago with the life of Christ and the New Testament, that was still a world I didn't understand. Uh, Paul was um, dealing with social norms and perceptions of of how one sees the world that are sometimes hard for us to reconstruct. He might have had intentions and tone behind his words that we can't capture in the written form or because we have not been able to fully kind of recreate what the cultural structure was that he was dealing with, like in an Ephesus or a Corinth or whatever else. Like we're piecing together like a lot of archaeological ideas. And that's kind of another thing. It's like, the, the like as Protestants we talk about like um sola scriptura and I'm not not a fan of sola scriptura but I also acknowledge that I'm not just studying the bible just the bible alone like part of the reason I can understand Corinthians better is because we do have some information from archaeology, from uh, history, from writings that have been preserved in some capacity, from looking at even just like the topography of Corinth and understanding how it was a city port and how they handled transfer of ships over, you know, kind of this weird skinny portion of, of the overall isthmus of where Corinth was located. And so we can reconstruct the environment. And therefore, when I read the Bible, I can I can actually understand parts of Corinthians because I have that history, that if I didn't have that history, I wouldn't understand Corinthians right. You know, that's part of it. Like, if you just read Paul's view of marriage in 1 Corinthians, he would be like, don't get married, it's no good, but if you get too horny, then you can get married. But only if you're too horny to not get married do you get married, and if you get married, don't have children. Like, he says that in chapter 7, right? 
But then he says this little thing about because of the current distress. And then we can go back and understand that there was a famine happening around the time that Paul wrote Corinthians. There was all of this kind of slave trading that was happening within the context of Corinthians. Uh, There were certain questions that they seemed to be asking that we don't have access to, but he was trying to answer particular questions. And he was answering some of those questions based on teachings of Jesus. And he says, the Lord says this. And then other times he's like, but I say that. And, And it's hard to put together, but it's an example of then that there is this task that we are engaged in to kind of uh kind of re kind of restructure and 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 kind of recreate the conditions and the attitudes and all of that and then we're trying to read the bible through that right and for that process then i go we need a lot of humility right and in that humility it's acknowledging that you know what we we don't know all of this perfectly. When I say something's biblical, what I'm saying to the best of my ability, as I try to interpret it, I think this is a biblical thing. And then from that, I extrapolate out into a doctrine or a dogma. But even that, I'm admitting that I'm synthesizing the text through the lens of understanding and from that creating a doctrine. And therefore, I'm actually a couple of layers outside of the Bible at that point, by the time I get to creating a doctrine, for example. And that should mean then I realize the potential for human missing of the mark in the process, it's in there, right? And because it's in there, what I'm doing is to the best of my ability, I believe that the way to kind of put together this understanding of the scripture is this, and I'm doing my best to think this is what it is. And yet I'm going to be humble enough and I'm going to be open enough to say, Hey, there may be some room for me to relearn. And in that humility, I also want to be cautious with how quickly I want to call somebody else wrong or heretical or whatever else, because I, I, I want to be really, really certain before I use words like that. And like, it's so airtight what it is, I believe. There's no other way to see this. And therefore, that's how we know something is, quote, non-biblical, un, kind of, I don't know, kind of heretical or, or not solid in our dogmatic kind of context or whatever else. But there just needs to be humility in that task. And so often I find that some of the the Bible teachers that I love the most, some of the ones that I go, they're, they're most trying to do their homework, sometimes they really do lack the tone of humility in it. It seems very much like this is the only way, this is the right way, and if you don't believe our way, then you're a heretic for not believing our way. And it's like, again, can we use that word less often? And kind of the other part is, hey, we're always growing, always learning. And imagine, you know, like in the history of the church, if that was always the response to every new way of trying to figure out a problem, right? Because for 2000 years, if there's anything that's been true of, of doctrine, it is the, the reapproaching and reassessing and retooling of doctrinal ideas, right? And there's always kind of this developmental thing. And I think that's a Holy Spirit thing. Like, I don't think that's not a Holy Spirit thing. I think that is a Holy Spirit thing. And I think the diversity that we see 2,000 years later is also a Holy Spirit thing. And it reminds all of us to have the humility that no one clan, no one tribe, no one denomination or group has got this thing so perfectly nailed down. They're the most right. They are the best at this task. No, it's always learning, always growing, always be willing to have the Holy Spirit be teaching us in the process. In fact, it's funny, this week uh, I'm doing uh, a section of First John where he talks about we have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit teaches us. And in light of that, we just got to really realize that we have to test the spirits between the human spirits of people that are in the name of God, just making stuff up. And then, or do we listen to the real Holy spirit who guides us and teaches us? And then John has very, very basic criteria. (laughs) Like it's so basic. I'm almost frustrated at times because he's like, 
how do you know if something's of the Holy Spirit? It claims that Jesus came from God and was fully human. That's kind of point A. And point B, it's willing to listen to us and not the people that left us. Like, that's kind of all he says. And you're like, I don't know if that gives me a ton of guidance. I mean, that's good. But maybe it also reminds me, like, John didn't get into a list of 50 things to prove what is a true test of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person and what is the test of a false prophet, if you will, in the life of a person. Like he didn't give this big exhaustive thing. He kept it pretty simple. Do you confess Jesus came into the world, that he was came in bodily form, that he lived, died, rose for us, right? You know, like, do you claim that? Uh, and do you like to listen to other historic teachers that have been approved? If so, <clears throat> thumbs up for you. Good enough, right? But that kind of makes my point again, right? That this idea that maybe what we need to do in our humility is realize that, yes, we have certain doctrines in our camps that bring us comfort, bring us focus, bring us hope. Uh, let us kind of put a, kind of a safety fence, if you will, around our communities of faith or our denominations or kind of outcroppings of Christianity or whatever else. Like this is kind of our quote, safe space before the woke generation was talking about safe spaces. Churches were creating safe spaces, right? This is our doctrinal creed that we hold to. If you don't hold to this creed, you're probably not going to be comfortable in here because this is how we main, maintain a safe space for us when it comes to spiritual stuff, right? Super cool that way. But in there, it's realizing that just by creating that space doesn't guarantee that everything in that space is right. Now, when I say that, what I'm not trying to say is, therefore, there's things in that space that are just utterly, diabolically, sinfully wrong, and that's just kind of goes with the territory. But there is this thing where I go back to what is the definition of sin? It is the missing of the mark. And I find that the more we try to have 500 subpoints to our doctrinal points, the more we ratchet down the tightness the more we actually risk the air, which I know sounds really strange maybe to some of us, but there is this truth that like the more I have to lace everything together and the more I have to make it this logical sequential thing and therefore I'm filling in gaps where the Bible doesn't fill in those gaps and I'm not willing to let the tension of the Bible reside, but instead I try to get rid of the tension and take it to the lowest common denominator. So I kind of push these verses to the obscure and I take these verses to the central what we're doing there is risking missing the mark, right? We, we, we risk, again, kind of discounting verse B for the sake of verse A, and we build a doctrine around that. And I'm telling you that as somebody who is, I like to call myself now, Calvinish, right? I don't know if I'm quite a Calvinist as much as I'm Calvinish. And I'm Calvinish for this very reason, right? Because, you know, like I think about the debates between Arminians and Calvinists. And if you're not familiar with that, I won't take your time on this podcast. You can go Google that nightmare for yourself, right? But but there's this thing where each side is doubling down on a point and then they build out from there. And if you're building out from idea A, even though it has kind of an antithetical B in the biblical text, like God's sovereignty and man's free will, right? And, and, and both are profoundly, boldly stated in the Bible. And we go, well, I got to build off of either A or B. You're risking something, right? You're going to risk error. And the more you drive an anchor and, and kind of this almost like, a, I don't know, a descending chain of ideas out of either one of those, right? So you're just building, 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 just deep into the ground ideas, right? 
the more specificity, the more risk, right? And, and that's an important factor I think we have to think about because we actually tend to think that, no, the more specific you are, the more right it is. And I go, no, the more specific you are, the more um, harmonious of an idea that it, it is. I think that's really true. You can you can build out a logical chain with specificity, but you're doing it at the cost of other ideas simultaneously or you're demoting some and you're elevating others and in doing that, we're getting away from how the Bible has this really great capacity to say two opposing ideas both being true and two opposing ideas that are both equally true and two opposing ideas that if you demote one and elevate the other, you're actually doing damage to both in the process because it seems that God loves to create these tension points so that we live our lives in dependency. He creates tension points so we live our lives in humility and he creates tension points so we live our lives with a certain level of wonder. So I don't go like, well, is it God's free or is it God's sovereignty or man's free will? Yes, you know, it's like, that's the answer. Well, no, it's got to be one or the other. No, it doesn't. It could be both. And I don't have to understand both were to be both. But as soon as I try to force it to be pretty much just one or pretty much just the other, or this one trumps that one, I'm risking error, right? Because now I'm becoming the arbiter of what is most true or what is the top truth and then kind of the sub-truth. And that's always going to be the risk. And so as I thought about my own life and I was thinking about, okay, I, I hold these doctrinal things, right? So I'm not Eastern Orthodox. I'm not Catholic. I'm Protestant. And in the Protestant tradition, I'm not a Pentecostal. I'm not Assembly of God. I am not Methodist. I'm not Lutheran. You know, you start picking all the different little listings there. I'm not even in a denomination, right? So I have some Southern Baptist-ish in me, but I would never fit in the Southern Baptist. So I decided to go to the safest, probably equally most reckless place, the non-denominational camp. Why? Because that's where you're able to make up the most rules sometimes, right? As far as like how you organize a church and you don't have all the bureaucracy over the top of you and you don't have to worry about all this crazy hierarchical structure. You can kind of move light and fast. And and that's why non-denominational churches are so um, profound in the United States and they have the most traction in the United States is because they've gotten rid of all of the governmental bureaucracy so they can do their job relatively streamlined, right? And so there's a lot of great stuff there. And I would say maybe in a little bit more deep to my scale than I'm this Calvinish kind of guy, but I'm Calvinish, not necessarily in the tone of John Calvin. I'm Calvinish more in the tone of like a, uh, like a Carl Bart, right? Or, um, uh, trying to think of some others that, well, there's not going to be any names you really know. I, I kind of go with these weird German ones to some degree, you know, and I kind of like their angle on that. It's a little bit different than like your RC Sproles or, you know, uh, Tim Keller is probably one in the United States. I go like, I'm more like a Tim Keller. I'm less like a John MacArthur by far, you know, like all that. So like, there's this whole thing, but in all of those layers, what I'm still realizing is the more specific I get, the more I'm probably sacrificing a lot of ideas that are God's ideas because, well, when you go down a track, you just kind of elevate some things and demote other things. And therefore all the more, the more specific I am, the more risk I am wrong, Right. And that's true for every Christian background, denomination, heritage, whatever it is. The more specific we get, the more we are kind of, again, creating human layers of reading the Bible, building systems, creating har har harmony in the systems, making all of this elegant interlocking thing from a book that is really, really kind of messy and a book that has a lot of conflicting ideas. I say conflicting. I don't want to necessarily say contradictory 
I mean, I actually do when I read it, I go, well, that's a contradiction of what you just said there. There are contradictions, but I want to be clear that contradiction doesn't mean that God didn't want it there, A, and B, that contradiction isn't a problem that we need to go like, how do I solve the contradiction? So I'm okay with the word contradiction, but I think it's more this idea that, that God kind of says this thing here and the opposite thing there, because both are true for different reasons and in different ways at different times. And that's okay, right? That's really okay. That does not demote the Bible in any way. It does not diminish the Bible in any way. I think what diminishes the Bible is when we try to, to, to pry those things out and say, oh, it's not really this and that. And then we play this weird game and we carry the one and it looks like an algebra equation at the end. And it's just like no common person would be like, oh, I approach the Bible that way. Like the common person is like, oh, no. Like it says it this way here and then it says something really opposite there, but both are really true for different reasons and different contexts and different ways at different times. And I want to learn from all of that. And in the midst of that, I want to always be teachable and say, God, help me stay humble to learn from you, especially because what does John say is the pro, the kind of the primary teacher that exists in our lives to understand what God has revealed to us, his Holy Spirit. And that's kind of mystical, right? That's not as simple as I just need to learn these hermeneutical principles. I'm going to apply these five rules and I'm going to be able to interpret the Bible every time perfectly on my own. No, part of this is a journey of faith. And part of this is a journey of uh, always being pliable enough and um, open enough for the Holy Spirit to teach us things as we go. And and I, I didn't say the Holy Spirit's the primary teacher. Jesus did. John did. Like, they're the ones that said, he's the one that's going to teach you all things. I mean, John even goes so far as to say, hey, you don't need a human teacher. You've got the Holy Spirit. That's pretty bold, right? Now, again, Paul says God gave teachers. There's no question there. God gave people to communicate his word. No question there. But chiefly, we have the Holy Spirit, which means we should always be in a posture of, hey, man, I'm ready to relearn. I'm ready to grow in a different way. I'm ready to be challenged in some other way. And in that, I'm going to stay humble enough to know that I know less than half of everything, and I probably get more things wrong than right. And there's probably a thousand things I do over the course of a year that I thought were righteous, and God's like, nope, I knew your attitude. I knew your your angle on that. I, I knew your application, or I knew that you were taking this from a verse that you've gotten wrong, Matt. And so what you did was wrong, but I know still your heart is trying to be right. Like there's a thousand things we all are going to miss the mark on. And this is why I go back to what I said at the beginning. Humility matters. We need grace daily because daily there are dozens and dozens of ways that we miss the mark right? In our perspectives, perceptions, attitudes, reactions, um, biases, things we hold to as dear truths that are probably lies, things that we uh, probably should embrace that we don't. And so we got to work toward that. There's just a bunch of stuff. Now that doesn't mean that we're not doing anything right. We're doing tons of stuff right too. There's going to be right thoughts and right attitudes and right beliefs that we're going to have. And they're going to be intertwined with all this other stuff. And thus, this is why grace is so amazing, Right? I, I say that especially to us as believers because I think we sometimes go, well, we're saved by grace, but the world is still not saved by grace. And they've got all the sin problem. Yeah, we're saved by grace. I'm like, right, we're saved by grace, which means we still got the sin problem, right? But our position in Christ is we're rescued by grace. Our position in Christ is that God sees us and doesn't account those weaknesses and missing of marks in our lives against us any longer. But boy, that should cause us to be even more humble and more teachable and more gracious to the world around us. And that's the other part. And if anything, I guess that was kind of the point of this whole podcast today is that I wanted to say, why do we need to be so gracious to the world around us? Because we rely on that grace every day for ourselves. And as soon as we don't sound gracious and we don't sound humble, we sound more proud. We sound like we know it all. We sound like we're more 
together than our disbelieving counterparts, uh, the more our disbelieving counterparts are going to be like, I don't want to join a proud club. I don't want to join an elite club necessarily. Because that's like, it's funny how many times I I hear people talking about, oh, these ivory tower elites or whatever else. But I'm like, a lot of times as Christians, we can sound like the ivory tower elites of morality and theology when the very foundation of our belief system is what? Grace, right? And the chief traits of our system are things like gentle, lowly, humility, meekness, right? Just those kinds of things alone, that we should be patient and long-suffering and kind. Like peacemaking is to be our gig, our thing, you know? And so if anything, all of this just reminds me of what the look of an everyday missionary is. It's a person that every day is all too keen to the fact that they are all too incomplete and that they are doing their best in the name of Christ because they long for more than anything else, relationship with him. For me, I'm, I don't know if I'm as fixated on being right as much as I'm fixated on being close to Jesus, right? I know I'm not going to get him right in every way. I'm not, I know I'm not going to get Christianity right in every way. I honestly look at it. I think some Catholics got some stuff right and I've got some stuff wrong. Eastern Orthodox, they got some stuff right. I got some stuff wrong, right? So that it's in there. It's just in there, right? But boy, I, I, the more I'm close to him, the more I can hear from his spirit. And that's what John says. If I'm focused on the base things that really matter to the core of our Christian faith, I got to realize the more specific I get, the more risk there is. And therefore, even in my specifics, which I hold, which I believe, I want to hold them with humility. I want to hold them with trust. I want to hold them with teachability. And I want to hold them with generosity toward other people. I don't want to make it sound like because you don't think like I think, you must be wrong. Now, as I end this, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that, therefore, there is no absolute wrong things. I'm not saying that right? That's a different podcast for a different time where I could be like, hey, here's some absolute wrong things. But even think about like John's framework. What would be an absolute wrong? Uh, Jesus isn't God or Jesus didn't come as a man or Jesus isn't the sacrifice for our sins and the way he creates relationship between us and God. Like if you took Jesus out of the saving equation, you took Jesus out of the God-man equation, John's like, that's a problem, right? But but kind of beyond that, he's pretty limber and he's like, you just got to listen to the Holy Spirit. I'm like, okay, that sounds pretty ominous, but I'm going to do my best, right? But again, it puts us then in the place of I want relationship, I want closeness, I want proximity to God, I want humility, and I want to realize that, man, I only grow by being near him. I only learn to adapt and hear the voice of God when I long for the voice of God in my life. And I think the more we do that as individuals, then the fruit of the Spirit comes out in our life and the more effective we are to reach the world around us and show them this person of Christ that we know so well and to show them why we are so keen on grace and humility and why we love the fact that God has shown us mercy every single day. And the best part, one of the least the best parts about being a Christian is I don't have to perform for God's love. God loves me and he knows that my performances are going to be good and bad and mixed at best. And yet he still loves me. Because he sent his son for me, for you, for us, for all of us, right? To rescue the world from our missing of the mark so that one day the sun will arise anew in the world and there will be no more missing of marks and we'll all know perfectly. And on that day, we're going to sit around and be like, that's so funny. That's Protestants. We messed that one up there, but we got that one right. You know, the non-denoms, oh, we were awesome there, but oh man, right there, that was awful we bought into that one. But hey, we didn't know at the time, right? The Catholics would be joking about it too, the Eastern Orthodox, you know, we're all going to be hanging out, kind of like swapping stories like, oh yeah, remember that one? That was crazy. The Pope was nuts there, but that Pope was right there. You're like, it's going to be great. 
See, I don't fear that. If anything, it just reminds me again of this need for humility and all that we do because every day we miss the mark a ton and every day God's mercies are new every morning and all through the day, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every one of those misses every single time John says in chapter one of his first letter because man, that is the nature of the gospel. That is the nature of grace and that is the nature of things that we must take out to our world as everyday missionaries.